Hi, this is Samantha, and you're listening to the Layman's Doctor podcast, where we're bringing medicine home. So I have quite a few podcast episodes talking about international medical graduates, you know, how to conquer USMLE, how to get into PLAB, how to even become a medical resident in Canada. Well, I really want to start talking about residency here in Jamaica because there are a lot of junior doctors, a lot of medical students as well, who are very much interested in taking part in our local programs and becoming um, residents, senior residents, senior registrars, and ultimately consultants as well. And I'm here to provide that information. Funnily enough, when I said to one of my friends, hey, I'm starting this series and, you know, I'm going to talk to so-and-so persons, I'm reaching out to persons, they were like, okay, finally. And I was like, okay, then. Okay. You could have just told me, sis. So I have a few persons who have already agreed and we're going to have a bunch of exciting conversations. But today we're going to talk about ENT air, nose, and throat, and the longer term, the more medical term for it, I always can't pronounce, I don't even bother to say it, and we're going to be talking to Dr. Warren Mullins, and hopefully we can talk a little bit about his residency process and give you tips and tricks on how you can become a ENT resident here in Jamaica, and hopefully we'll also touch a little bit on his fellowship and how he got to do his fellowship as well. So, Dr. Malin. Hi, Samantha. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. By the way, it's otorhinolaryngology. I'm not even going to try. Sorry. (laughs) I have to see it written out before I even can try. (laughs) It, It takes a while. Okay. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. Just a little bit. So I am Jamaican, start there. I grew up here from Montego Bay. I got into medical school, uh, finished medical school in 06 and started my residency a year after. So I SHO year and then I started my residency in ENT at the university hospital. Loved it there, spent, I think it was six years in the program. And during that time, I did a year abroad, and then I did a fellowship afterwards. And now I am a consultant at the Kingston Public Hospital, and I I love what I do. All right, so thanks for sharing. So you finished, and we can see that this is, I, I really hope you're not sensitive about the time, you know, some time away at least you finished med school in oh i'm old don't worry about it oh i know <laughs> it's in 2006 um and that means you got into the program about 2008 or nine yeah that's right that's right yes yes i think why it's important for me i've kind of been asking um more i'm going to use the word seasoned Um, post DM persons because one I think the experience that you had is a little bit different especially the fact that you know maybe after SHO you got right in I'm seeing well I can't really speak personal but a lot of persons tend to maybe do a MO year or so yes and then you know there are more persons as well but then not just that, you are a consultant in the public system and also a hospital, KPH, one of our training centers. Yes. So I'm really hoping that this will be beneficial for persons who not only, of course, have an interest with ENT, but also this can maybe help them in how they can even think about applying to the residency and what they can expect both from when you were a student and now, I suppose, as I don't know if you're like a lecturer or anything now, but I suspect that you teach at some point. Yeah, so I spend a big part of my time mostly with the residency program rather than with medical students. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I spend quite a bit of my time doing 
lectures and training and yes as a big part of my public practice absolutely okay perfect just because you have that i want to i want to ask you when you applied right after mm. SHO, yes do you think it was a little bit easier to get in when you were going in than it may be now i don't know if that's a good way to phrase it but well you know i think that it's always been competitive Mm-hmm. And certainly the, the graduates today are very focused and they know what they want and they go after what they want. And we have great candidates who apply every year. I'd want to say that when I applied, I thought they were great candidates too. They may not have been as a great number. But one of the interesting things about the time when I was applying is that they didn't allow many people in at the same time. So, for example, in my year, I was fortunate enough to be the only person who got into the program. And that's the nature or the disadvantage in training in a smaller country, that just the number of spaces are limited. And so I think it's always going to be competitive. I remember maybe the year prior to me getting in, there were either three or four people who got in. And therefore, I think there was a decision at the level of the specialty board to reduce the numbers for the subsequent years and so for the year for a few years afterwards there were one or two candidates who were allowed in and so it, it, i think the 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 difficulty in getting in will change just depending on the circumstances and how many people would like to do the program at the same time but there is a perspective i have that you should always go for what you want and you may not get in the first year, but certainly I truly believe that once you apply yourself, you will get in. At some point, for sure, you will get in. So I, and, and that's anywhere. Having been a part of training programs, both here and in Canada, I definitely see where there have been so many people who have thought that the competition was too great and uh, may have given up, but others who persevered through, you know, whatever was going on at the time. And the ones who persevered always eventually got it. Okay, so really what I'm hearing is the challenge more so has mostly been in terms of space because I suspect that those numbers have increased, but also the number of graduates have increased. And it's probably maybe proportionally might work out being the same kind of challenge. But, you know, if it's if it's something that you want, which is which is something a lot of persons who come on my podcast have repeatedly said, if it's something that you want and you have a plan and, you know, you're really keen on getting this goal, you're eventually going to get it. You may just have to try a different way or just continue trying and it's also okay as well to take a step back and say, hmm, this no that I have gotten, is it going to stop me from trying again? Or even is it a, hmm, is this really what I wanted? Like it gives you an opportunity to maybe re- reevaluate as well. But Absolutely. a lot of times it's just been like, you know, a no isn't something to really discourage you. No, no. And, and it's an important pause i think for many people because people who do medicine often do well in school and they rarely hear no they rarely come upon periods where they don't achieve what they want to achieve and it can be daunting when it does happen and it has happened i think to everybody one of the important lessons from a no is really introspection and reevaluation and determining if this is what you really want like is this the price i'm really willing to pay i do i want this bad enough to keep trying and often that pause is important because this is something that you're going to spend the rest of your life doing and you want to be sure and and no can be a blessing even if you don't do the program and if you do it can be a pause that makes you really focused and, and determined to go after your goals well said all right let's go to when you were applying Mm-hmm. Was your senior house officer set up 
similarly to ours where you chose different specialities like you had that option yes yes Yes. so what did you do as an SHO so my period of deciding what I wanted to do started probably in my fourth year and I remember doing an elective with Dr. Dunkwa at the time and I was really focused on doing facial and reconstructive surgery and that was what sparked my interest I was like okay I should do this and and really I wanted to do facial mats first um, to be honest and then upon finishing I realized I had to go to dental school and I was talking to Dr. Errol Williams who's a really prominent senior colleague facial maxillary surgeon and he said you know Warren you can do facial reconstructive surgery through ENT you should do ENT this was in my SHO year and it was trying to gather the skill set of becoming a facial maxillary surgeon that I went into first anesthesia. So I did six months in anesthesia because you needed to know how to intubate and how to operate around and share an airway. And then I spent a year, well, six months with facial maxillary surgery. So I did a different route in the department at, at the Kingston Public Hospital. And that's where I'm, I you know, spent most of my time learning from Dr. Williams. And it was doing almost like potpourri of experience that I really started to understand how all the specialties come together in order to get the outcome that you're trying to achieve and, and how ENT played this big role in everything. And that year of just learning different skill sets really made me solidify my desire to do ENT simply because it's a field that allows you to to work in so many different areas and such a big specialty that has so many different skill sets that it was during that time of applying and then doing other things and understanding the specialty more without actually working in the specialty be just looking from the outside because when i was in that anesthesia you know i'd let them know oh i'm interested in ent and they said okay i did the ent list every week that's how i got exposed to the variety and it's just over that time and through those experiences that I was able to to hone in and, and, and determine that, yes, this is what I wanted to do and be able to meet the people in the program and the residents and the consultants because I was working with them on the other side of the table, but I was working with them nonetheless. And, and you know, I, I was just very confident and open about what I wanted to do and the way in which I wanted to go about it. So. Yeah, during that period of application, I, I, it wasn't a one time. It wasn't a, oh, I, I want to do ENT now. I, it was a process of getting there. And during that process of working with the different people, you know, the different individuals in ENT, that I got the exposure that I needed to, I guess, make an impression at the time of application. I actually find it very interesting that you did not do ENT as an no, I didn't. SHO. I didn't at all. And, but then also got in in your SHO year, going into your first MO year. Yes. I really liked that answer because I think what it does is that, one, it showed you that you can still have a sincere interest in a speciality. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't get your, well, now for us, it's four months. Even if you don't get your four months or you only get two months of it or you only got to do it an elective, that there's still a way for you to become involved and show your interest. Absolutely. What I'm hearing from this is that it was really important for you to not just, okay, do ENT, do face and max, and then all of a sudden you have applied for ENT and it's just like, okay, but who is this person? Why are they applying? Why should right. they come in? Right. But instead, you were just like, okay, I'm on Anis. Right. I'm, I want the ENT cases. Right. That's how I'm going to get my exposure. You know, so, and you made it very clear to the persons Absolutely. who would be looking at your application and deciding whether or not you can come into the program. And you made it clear to them and say, hey, I want to do ENT. And I think it's easier to show interest when you're actually in the specialty because you're like, okay, I want to do ENT. That's why I chose it to be an SHO. That's great. I know that then I think what is really important is just being like, you know, taking the time out to read. Again, speak about your interest 
and just you know you know how sometimes you kind of just maybe go through the motions and just like oh, i just want to finish this rotation right um but then there's also the sh or the intern or the resident that's like okay i'm i have an active interest in this i'm reading yes. i'm providing this course yes. and yes. that's that's one way that everybody knows. I'm really grateful that we have this other way because I'm sure that there are persons, especially during COVID and mm. having to be put on internal medicine and ANIS right. and A&E who right. have interest in other areas. Absolutely. And they just no, don't like, have the opportunity to, to join. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things that I did when I was at KPH in facial maxillary surgery I was just bold and I was upfront and I, and I went to the head of the ENT department at KPH at the time, uh, Dr. Chang, I believe was head at the time. And I said to him, you know, I, I, I'm really interested in ENT and I'd like you to know that. So he says, well, I have six o'clock rounds every Thursday morning, 6 a.m. rounds. So I went to 6 a.m. rounds every Thursday morning. I was never on ENT, but I was there. and. I was really happy I didn't do ENT as an SHO. And the reason, okay, why? Yeah. And the reason, I'm ready. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The reason is that my mentors in facial maxillary surgery were really purposeful in telling me that, Warren, what you really want to do is develop skills, skill sets that set you apart. And being in anesthesia was such an important period of my life because I learned and honed an important skill, just how to intubate and how to manage an airway, that I, I use those skills to this very day all the time. And sometimes when you're in a specialty, you're really focused on learning the skill sets in the specialty. But I'm going to spend six years, I'm going to spend my entire life in a specialty. I'm going to learn those skill sets. I needed to learn... I call them adjunctive skill sets, other skills, how to put somebody to sleep, um, sedation, pain control, um, how to, to wire a mouth shut, how to fix a mandibular fracture. A lot of the things that you can do as allied to ENT, those skill sets that I learned outside of ENT. I remember when I was in cardiothoracic surgery, I, that's the time that I did the most bronchoscopies ever. That was while I was in the program. But I remember being on cardiothoracic surgery and being at national chest and there was a period of rotation. Usually I had to spend, I believe it was six weeks in one at chest and then six weeks at uni. But I remember asking the, the, the head at the time if I could just spend at least eight weeks of my time at chest because I wanted to be able to do bronchoscopies well. And I, I think that's the one of the things that I learned is it's less about spending the time, numerical time, and more about quality time, um, what, what I call focused practice. So, you know, you, you have an objective. You want to learn how to do a bronchoscopy. You need to learn the steps. You don't just want to say, oh, I've done five bronchoscopies. Like when, I, when I'm done, I want to do... Uh, 20 bronchoscopies but I don't want to do 20 bad bronchoscopies I want to be improving each time so I just needed to use that time to learn and improve the skill set with a with somebody who's a expert in the area so I wasn't learning bronchoscopies from ENT I was learning them from cardiothoracic surgery these guys do it every day so I, I spent that period prior to joining the program because I was pretty confident I was going to get in because I was making myself really competitive so I was like you know what I make myself stand out by learning skills and having other people say, you know, this guy is good at these skills. And I've talked to him myself. And and so I was very upfront in saying I needed to learn these skills well and I wanted to learn it from you and this is how I want to do it and and so on. And and they were open and gracious enough to, to teach. And sometimes you just have to be open about what you want in life and ask. And that's what I did. Well, that was a lot of initiative and a lot of just being very purposeful. And I really like that you added the fact that you you chose other specialties that you found would have been useful. And then when you said the thing about the bronchoscopy, it reminds mm-hmm. me of something that I always tell med students because, you know, 
They come, now I'm on the other side. I'm one of the interns, SHOs, MOs that gets to sign the procedure paper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I like, I like to look at the paper. I'm like, okay, guys, what is it that you need? And I spend most of my time in A&E now. So, you know, they're like, oh, I just need, you know, three ECGs. I'm like, no, you don't, you don't do the bare minimum. Absolutely. Do as many as you can. And I say, you you don't even know how much your procedure card can save you. When Absolutely. I was a student, <laughs> when I was a student, I made sure that my procedure cards were as full as they could get, not just because it can really help your grade and help you to pass and really show your supervisors that you're interested, mm-hmm. but also it really helps your skills and a huge I think that internship is really great for again honing your skills um sure but it's a completely different thing when while you're in school you're actually participating and you're showing that initiative and you're saying okay I only need I remember one time we had to do nebulizing Mm -hmm. and it was maybe only three that we needed I said I don't know if I said it let me not say I said it but you know you're telling the story Mm -hmm. but we decided to tell to say to nurses hey we have to do nebulizations for pediatrics yes how about on your next dose because you know they do the whole ward themselves mm-hmm. how about we do the entire ward entire ward yeah yeah and you get your three over whatever and you're doing it so many times that by time by the end of the the rotation when they come in the station and they show you in the Nebs chamber and even they, they like to trick you with that little thing that looks like a, I can't remember what it's called, but, but I knew what it was called then because they would always try and trick you with it. Right. And after you finish it, they're like, oh, I can tell you about this in my sleep. Exactly. Because you've just, you do it all the time. And I, yeah. and I think that's what medicine is. It's a practical profession, right? You have to do it. And everybody knows that. We have to practice it. But I think one of the lessons I've learned is purposeful practice. It's not literally just doing it, but being thoughtful about what you're doing and developing the skill sets in terms of what you're doing, the steps you're doing it, and how to perfect it each time, improve each time. And I think that's where you really grow. Exactly. It, that's my my relationship with ECGs. If I don't do it for a while, when I pick one up, I... <laughs> have to start over and one of my consultants said like it's not just you samantha ecgs are something that you have to continuously practice you don't just learn it and put it absolutely all right so when you applied Mm -hmm. do you think that the application process no is different than when you were applying i personally don't know much about the application process and yes. that will be addressed in subsequent podcasts with yes. recent applicants. Yes. But um, what did you need then? And I don't know if you know what is needed. No, just to make a quick comparison. So I'm not actively involved in the selection currently. But I am aware of what happens. And one of the things is that, that and it depends on the personality of the program. I, I keep telling people that I think each program and each program director or head of a department would have a personality. There are certain things that they like and some things that they don't like. So, for example, Dr. Ashman, who's the head of ENT currently and, and head of the program, he likes to know what you did while you're in rotation. You know, how focused you were and, and whether or not you were involved and really liked it or not. And he does take a lot of, let's say, feedback from the people who you've worked with outside of the university. So if you've worked in ENT and other departments around the country, then he'll take that kind of feedback and understand. And so I think that's crucial if you really understand the program that you are applying to. So I think it's important to think about it from early and apply yourself and even if you didn't know while you're doing it and you may have had a bad rotation it's not something to say that you won't get in it's just one of the factors and being open and being clear and communicating with 
not only the program director, but with uh, different people who are in the program and different consultants in different departments all around the, the country helps because you don't know when they have conversations and, you know, do you know this particular candidate? And, oh, yes, I've worked with them before and so on, so on, so on. They're really keen. That, that has an, an influence. So I think the important message is you want to know about the program that you're applying to. You want to know about the factors that are important in that program, and academic work is important in ENT and the, the program. Um, aptitude is important. Personality um, is important. Just being willing to learn, I think that's one of the most important skill sets to have. And it, oftentimes, what happens, unfortunately, is there are people who will work in ENT for a long time and they won't necessarily get into the program. And they're like, why? Can't? They don't get it. They've worked and they, they do good work. But one of the things that people who are in charge of a program and who are interested in training people, they want to know that the person who is coming in is actually trainable. And, and that might sound weird. Everybody's trainable. But oftentimes, some people just make it really difficult to be trained, they they come with that a personality and attitude that oh I'm gifted, oh I I know this already. This person taught me to do it this way, and this is the way it works well, and I've seen it work, so this is the way I'm going to do it. And I, and unfortunately, I think that's a really bad mindset. Those who are applying, I believe, really need to be very open about their training and very approachable in terms of. Learning different ways to do the same thing, and 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 those are I think the important tools that you use to apply. It's not literally all about your your grades. It's about who you are and how approachable you are and how teachable you are. Well, those are a lot of useful points, mm-hmm. um, for persons who are listening, and um. It's basically, basically doing your research and creating a profile that makes you a good candidate, um, especially for the, all of them are competitive, but the more competitive um, residencies that, you know, have fewer spots. Sure. What I want to ask about very quickly is just the layout of the program, because you said six years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah so the each program the dm program at the university has a dm handbook and there are um, basic requirements uh, there's a dm one year as a well two years and then you do a dm one exam and then a dm two exam and there is a one year elective while in ent specifically as a requirement so in total, it ends up being at least a six-year program. So you spend two years, then you do your DM1 exam, and having successfully completed your DM1 exam, you would have spent uh, an additional four years. That one-year elective, what did you do it in? And did you do it locally, or did you go abroad for it? So my one-year elective, I spent in Vancouver, in Canada. So I did it abroad. I did it in all the specialties. I did it in otology, rhinology, and head and neck oncology surgery, as well as I did some facial plastics. So it really is meant to be a year in a completely different setting where you work hopefully with experts in a particular field or fields. And you learn just a different approach. You get exposure to some things that you, or technologies that you may not have here. And it's supposed to be, or designed to be, a hands-on intensive training period at a senior point in your training that you would have developed skill sets that you have not yet um, learned or skill sets that are not locally available to improve your repertoire, your armamentarium. Okay, um, that year abroad, is it something that you have to organize or does the faculty or the department help you 
um, or have relationships with other schools and other universities and hospitals that you can maybe leverage? Like, is there some assistance? Yes. So there is, there are relationships that would have been developed over the, over the years with different hospitals. And certainly now one of the um, good things with the, I think the training initiative in the UK, I didn't go to the UK, but I'm the only resident to have not gone to the UK. So everybody else goes to the UK or have gone to the UK during their elective period. There are a number of hospitals and institutions, universities that the program has developed relationships with. And the residents have, some residents have themselves developed very good relationships with training programs. And so, yes, there is almost like a feeder program where they anticipate a resident coming from the university every year. And I think we have at least three different training spots now where we're fortunate enough to have a good relationship with in the UK. Okay, that's amazing. That's actually really great. I'm, I never knew how it worked and I just figured it would be very, it may have been a bit more difficult, especially for that long period if you kind of had to do it on your own. Right. So it can be difficult, especially if you choose to go somewhere that there, there isn't a relationship. Mm-hmm. And there have been people who've gone to other countries, for example, in India. I, I went to Canada. However, I think what has happened is because we've had a consistent number of very good residents who go away to the UK, that they've understood our program mm-hmm. and our skill sets and our aptitude. And, and therefore, mm-hmm. they really... I have found that we have very good feedback and, and so they're they're willing to consistently take our resident um, every year. And sometimes we've had two or three residents away at the same time because of that beneficial relationship. So UE graduates really represent themselves well internationally. I have realized from my year or so of doing podcasting. So I'm really not surprised that when our ENT residents go to the UK, for example, that they do well. Yes, yes, they do. I'm not surprised by that. Um, I remember in one conversation I've had, the person was just basically saying that, you know, UE graduates, UE medical graduates have almost a reputation of excelling and doing well in their programs. I didn't want to ask though, because I'm sure persons are curious when it came to housing and lodging and mm-hmm. is it that, you know, when there's like maybe a bilateral agreement where, you know, they'll kind of put you up and help you out or are residents kind of expected to, to, all right, you know that you're going to go away for this one year maybe go somewhere that's close to family or you might have to pay for housing, food, or are they paid Mm -hmm. um, similarly to when they work in Jamaica? Or does it depend on the place? It depends on where you're going to train. Um, In the UK, predominantly everybody is paid. Uh, I wasn't in the UK, but that's what I'm being told. Um, Reliably so. So, and then what, the benefit you have is that you would have had a resident who would have been there before. So there is a an experience within the department about different cities in which people would have lived in and areas where there's good housing and easy transportation. And oftentimes the department would have uh, relationships with people who will rent in the communities and so on that are safe. And, and so there is a, we've had residents who've, understood had a car while they're there and they sold it to the next resident who was coming around coming around when they were leaving so that kind of a um, partnership does exist and and therefore it makes it easier because you have somebody who would have been there who understand the runnings you know they understand how to to make life happen and so the benefit of being in the uk is that you're paid and, and that certainly helps that's really awesome. That's really, really awesome, actually. I hope the listeners can hear me smiling because I'm literally smiling and happy to hear that. I think a broad experience is such an amazing thing because you get to learn in 
a quote-unquote first world setting you get to learn new techniques you get to see how medicine is practiced in other cultures and countries and where there are other resources that exist and you also get to kind of bring back those lessons that you've learned and those talents that you've picked up back home and it can improve the care or even have you become an advocate for saying hey let's us as a department maybe get this device or absolutely in place this policy and it improves absolutely. the quality of care absolutely overall. you know one of the things we don't talk about as much um in in medicine and, and locally is just the the lifestyle that you get because one of the things that the guys who go to the uk always talk about is that they get to travel to europe these guys get a year and they go to paris and they go to train in in the netherlands and they go all over the place and i think that's one of the benefits and one of the perks i certainly believe you just get to experience a different culture it's not all about academics and and there's a life outside of school and training and, and it can be great i mean there are people who have long-term friendships with surgeons all over the world in, in different jurisdictions that they still talk to today and, and collaborate with even today and, and bounce things off today. So there is that as well that I, I believe shouldn't be discounted or, or not highlighted that, yeah, you, you actually get to, to travel. And, and that's a good thing. That is an excellent point. And also a great reason to go to the UK because you get access to that huge continent. Absolutely. Very quickly, because we have a little bit of time. Yes. I want to get into your fellowship. Okay. It says on your Instagram, mm-hmm. fellowship trained sinus surgeon. Mm-hmm. So what type of fellowship did you do? How did you even become interested in that? Mm-hmm. How did you go about getting mm-hmm. it um, or getting into it or even applying for it? And is it something that you suggest other post-DM graduates do? Mm-hmm. So my fellowship was in endoscopic sinus and skull day surgery. And it basically entails using an, an endoscopic techniques to operate in the nose, the orbit, the brain, and even the spine. And I got into that specialty while I was on my elective. And then I got a chance to work with an endoscopic sinus and skull base surgeon in Vancouver. And just seeing the, just the technology that's involved and the extent of the surgery and the minimal invasiveness of the procedures and the fact that people are going home on the same day and just the improvement in people's quality of life because such a big part of sinus surgery is improving people's quality of life. And that's what really stood out to me. It was really important that you were making the patient lives better. And that's what really grabbed me. And I was like, wow. You know, people are now smelling again and they're breathing again. And they're like, oh, my God, I feel like I'm alive again and I can run a marathon again. And you were just improving people's lives. And that's what attracted me to to this specialty. The technology, of course, was amazing as using navigation, which we have now here. One of the skill sets that we've been able to carry in technology to, to back here that wasn't here before. And just being able to, you know, take tumors out of people's brains and send them home and they're having minimal or reduced amount of post-operative complications just because of the techniques that we're using just was amazing to me my mind was blown I was like okay I need to be a part of that and not only that the fact that the specialty in and of itself was just growing and so that's how I, I got involved initially and while there I just became very purposeful I was like okay this is what I want to do I was convinced and I, I was very clear with the program directors there that you know this is what I want to do and then I'd go on weekends again. So, you know, with the program, um, when I was not on call on the weekends, as in the rhinology OR on a Saturday, which they'd have a private OR that they would be in. And I was there every Saturday, even when I didn't need to be there. In fact, I didn't need to be there because I wasn't on the rotation. But I was just there. And I was just very purposeful in letting them know, this is what I want to do. And I just 
I didn't get I wasn't operating because there's a resident assigned who would get the dibs or would obviously get the opportunity to do the work. But I would just sit and whenever there's a case going on in the night, even if my work was done and I was able to go home, I'd just go to the operating room in the night and watch a rhinology case or watching the neurosurgeons take out a huge tumor. And I was like, this is what I wanted to do. So I just became very purposeful having been convinced that this is what I want to do. And, and, and I applied and I was like, okay, what makes my competitive? And it was, it was okay. I needed to get involved in research. So I just started to write as much and do as much research work as I could do. And, and eventually, you know, I applied and I got early acceptance into the um, fellowship program. So I would have been accepted prior to me finishing my DM program and then started, had a start date because you had to apply early. The, um, the fellowship that I got into, you know, the, with my fellowship director, Professor Minjavir, um, he has people applying and he would he accepts two years in advance. So you would have had to know what you want to do from before because if you waited until you're done and, you know, I wanted, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. But one of the things that I liked the most about fellowship was that it taught me how to train people. Interestingly, I didn't know that that was a big part of it, but, you know, and one of the things, one of the first things he gave me was a book to read. And it wasn't a textbook at all. It was called Peak. And this book just spoke about the process about which you go about training. And how do you learn a skill set? And how do you develop expertise? How do athletes do it? How do um, musicians do it? You know, how it is that you become a world expert in a field and how do you go about your training and so on. And, and, and that book really changed my life. And he got me into reading and just things outside of medicine and just opening my eyes and, and being a, you know, being a part of things outside of academia and how to teach someone, how to not take the procedure away and how to work through with them and just developing those skill sets. And I think that was the most magical thing about my fellowship was was just me growing as a person as an individual as a leader of a team and understanding that leadership role and how to do research and the nuts and bolts of fellowship and training was important absolutely and and just spending my time doing rhinology every day all day just made me really happy but also the fact that it helped me to grow and to blossom as an individual and so that's how I got involved I find myself every year trying to read at least three to four books I mean I, I just because of that experience in my fellowship, because like, okay, you finished reading this book. This is the book we're going to read now. And he'd buy me the book and said, okay, we're going to read this. And then we're going to discuss it in a few months. And then we talk about the books all the time when we're operating. And I really appreciate that. And he's like a father figure to me, you know, and we'd, you know, just, just discuss life all the time. And we talk all the time now, even, even today, very little about right now, a lot about rhinology and what we do, but, Oftentimes we talk about so many things in life and so on. So I think fellowship is a really important maturing time as a senior surgeon or as a junior surgeon coming into your own and learning who you are and being a leader and growing as an individual. I found that that's what the fellowship really helped to solidify for me and, and, and its important role. You really have to be... I don't know if the word is decisive, but it's really just knowing what you want and going after it. I think my big question here is, is there any support from the faculty or the department for persons in the program who are interested in doing fellowships? Yeah, I think there is. We encourage people to do fellowships all the Mm -hmm. time. But what I actually discourage is the the notion that you must do a fellowship or you do a mm-hmm. and, and because it, it's interesting but while in my fellowship I remember my fellowship director would always say there's a, always an important role for the generalist don't ever underestimate that and people think that oh you have to do a fellowship because that's a thing to do I think you do a fellowship if you know that this is what you want to spend your entire life doing this Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you are somebody who you like the variety and you like doing multiple different things and you may do a procedure one or two times a year, but you do it well and that's good enough for you, a fellowship's mm-hmm. not for you. 
if you want to do a procedure and do everybody else's complications or poor outcomes that people may have had and you want to fix them and you want to do revision surgery and you want to do really difficult cases and you want to do it every day all the time and be challenged all the time then a fellowship is for you you know what i mean but a fellowship i don't believe is for everybody but it's certainly for the mm-hmm. person who really wants to just do a small number of things really 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 well and 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 spend their time doing it all so if i have an endoscope all day long i'm the happiest person on earth that's it i'm good <laughs> you know what i mean all day long I'm happy. I, I tell people I could deliver a baby with an endoscope. I love having an endoscope in my hand. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's what I do. It's, it's, uh, and so I like the challenge and the difficulty. And, you know, it can be mm-hmm. cumbersome when it's, you don't enjoy it all the time. But the majority of the time, that's what I want to do. So I think it's important to know who a fellowship is for and if it's for your personality. And I don't think it makes you uh, more money than anybody else. I personally don't think so. Certainly not in Jamaica, in a smaller country and environment. I don't think so. Um, mm-hmm. I think you just do it because you love doing it. It has to be for the love, not for the legs. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things to really get from this conversation is being upfront and honest with yourself yeah. about what it is you do want and what it is you don't want and actually taking the time out to figure that out so that you can then make the preparations so you can execute your plan, basically. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Um, I think this has been a really great conversation. um, For I think it has been a great conversation for persons, especially those who are interested in joining uh, this particular specialty, ENT, but I also think there are valuable lessons here that we have discussed for persons who are who are just considering entering a specialty, whether it be here or abroad, Absolutely. really and truly. Yeah. Just based on the principles that you have discussed, I really wanted to end this with kind of a catch-all closing piece right. where, you know, if... I say to you, okay, if someone came to you right now and they're asking you for advice yes. for applying to the ENT program, what would you say? But you have said so much already, <laughs> but I'm still going to do it. Right. And we can talk a little bit about how persons can get in touch with you. So, yeah, it's me. I'm Samantha. I'm saying to you, Dr. Mullins, I'm really interested in ENT. I'm in fourth year. Right. This is what I really want to do. Yes. I'm in love with yes. it. What is some advice? that you can give me to help me get into the program and not just get in but do well Uh in the program and be this great ENT specialist? I think what you want to do is be confident in your decision. If you know that this is what you want to do, communicate that. Talk about it. Be available. Go everywhere you can to learn more about it. Be present regardless of whichever rotation that you may be on. Certainly you have to finish medical school first, of course, and, and achieve that outcome. But, you know, once you've done and you're, you're trying to get into that program, I want to know. We want to know that you want to do this and we want to see you and, you know, feel your presence and you're at the conferences and, you know, you're at the operating room when you can. You know, you're there. You're present. And being present is, is super important. Um, work hard everybody works hard so uh, you know work really hard at, at what you do and, and and I think you will get in there is just no doubt in my mind that you will get in once you're present and you work hard you will get in I, I think that would be my advice thank you so much for sharing uh holy but information there is just a wealth of information in this podcast and I I'm really excited for this series. So thank you for being the first. You were just so willing. I asked you and just like, yeah, sure, no problem. Um, which is so amazing for me. Um, but for persons who may want to contact you or reach out to you or follow you, where can they find you? How can they get Right, so I am 
on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at The Snot Doctor. I'm also on a website, thesnotdoctor.com. So they're all the same tag. Also, you can email me, I don't mind, at hello at thesnotdoctor.com. As well as you can reach out, I'm at Facial and Oral Surgical Associates. And our website is www.fossafosajm.com. And you can reach out to us by email at info, I-N-F-O, at fossajm.com as well. And at all my social media handles, if you send me a message, I will do my best to respond. Okay. Thank you so much for being a part of this. And you are very responsive online and on Twitter, for sure, because that's how I reached out to you, obviously. <laughs> um, I, I don't think a lot of people realize that when I have these podcasts, that sometimes it's the very first time I'm having a conversation yeah. with yeah. the person. But thank you so much. I'm sure that this will reach who it needs to reach and it will help who it helps and maybe even one day a new resident will be like oh yeah hi Dr. Mullins yeah I'm totally applied because I felt so empowered by I would love that I would love that I would love that (laughs) you know I can dream I get messages like oh Sam I finally decided I'm gonna do USMLE because of your podcast or you know I decided it's 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 really it's absolutely so again (laughs) thank you so much for being a part of this thank you very much sam for having me i really appreciate it all right so guys if you want to reach out to me you can message me on twitter instagram at the layman's doctor that's at the layman's dr you can also send me an email at samantha at the layman's doctor.com or you can simply just go to my website the layman's doctor.com and go in the contact section and send me a message and I will get to it and respond to it as soon as I can. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. It was a really great one for me. I'm really excited for this series. So until next time, see you later.